Thank you for downloading this episode of Folk on Foot. Before we start, I just wanted to share a brief message. If you like what we do, we really need your support to keep going. You can join our wonderful band of members and you'll get great rewards. These include access to our amazing Folk on Foot on Film archive of hundreds of songs shot on location on our travels around the UK and Ireland. To sign up, just go to folkonfoot.com slash support us. You'll also get an ad-free version of all our episodes and an email postcard from me each time we go on a walk. If you just want the ad-free version, it'll cost you £3 a month and you can get it through your Apple Podcast app or at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Finally, if you don't want to make a regular commitment but do want to show how much you love us, you can simply buy us a coffee. You can also do that at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Every penny we get goes back into making more episodes of Folk on Foot. So thank you and enjoy the walk. Last year I heard one of the most significant and important albums I've heard for a long time. The Sorrow Songs by Angeline Morrison. Songs based on black British experience dating back through history and it had a profound impact on me and and as soon as I heard it I wanted to meet her and to talk more to her about her inspiration. So I've come to North Cornwall now to the area where she lives and we're going to find out more about Angeline Morrison, her music and this extraordinary album. Angeline, good morning. It's lovely to see you. Good morning. It's lovely to see you too. Welcome to Cornwall. Where, where have you brought us to? Where are we? Okay, we're in Park Shady. That's Park with a C, which is the Cornish spelling. And we are not far from Porth Town Beach, which is where we're heading towards. Wonderful. And there's a lot of wild garlic here, isn't there? Yeah, there's loads. Wild garlic and bluebells and the hedgerows. It's a real bounty. And have you lived in, in Cornwall for a long time? Uh, yeah, pretty long time. I, I really love it here. It feels it's my well. I'm from Birmingham originally, but this feels like my. It feels like I've got two homes. I don't want to say second home because there's negative connotations to that, <laughs> isn't there? Especially when you live in a coastal community. But I do feel like I've got two homes, and Cornwall is one of them for me. It feeds my soul. What brought you here in the first place? Um, I fell in love with the Obios. What's the obios? You've got to tell, I know the, you the obios know is what a the obios thing. Is. I do know, but you just yeah. explain it for those who don't know. Well, it's a very, very ancient tradition of padstow in Cornwall. And um, it is so very ancient that nobody is really sure where it began. But it involves, um, it used to be just one obios, or hobby horse. But obios is the um, Cornish way of saying hobby horse. And the, the os goes through the village to a particular uh, song and tune that is unique to this Padstonian tradition. And there are drums and accordions and anyone from Padstow who follows the procession wears white and either a red neckerchief if they're following the original obios or a blue neckerchief if they're following the peace os, which is the second os which was brought in in 1918 to mark the end of the First World War. Right. So there's two obioses and, and so the the obios has a really particular looking face. So the dancer inside it wears a mask. The dance is extraordinary. It's like nothing you will have ever seen in Britain. It's an incredible dance. There's a film made by Peter Kennedy in the 1950s called Os Os We Os. If you haven't seen that I really recommend it. It's on YouTube. And in that, there's footage from the 50s of the dancers practising in a local pub. So they're practising out of costume and you can really see the way their bodies move. It's extraordinary. It's so compelling. And when you actually get there to the, to the event, you really feel like you're part of something very powerful and very ancient. It's got the most incredible atmosphere. And um, it just pulls you in. And the drum beats feel like 
a multitude of beating hearts almost and you, you just feel so incredibly pulled in. And how did you first come across it? Well, I, I, I got into folk traditions probably as a teenager. I began researching as much as I could possibly find out about... It started with, with, with folk song, really, and then folk dance and music and traditional customs. And when I found out that there were places in the UK where these very ancient traditional customs continue to be practiced that absolutely blew my mind and I really what I loved about it was what I think a lot of people at the moment are loving about it which is that sense of connectivity and a sense of being part of something bigger being a part of something natural being part of um part of sort of the 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 bigger picture of nature that we're not separate from it or from each other as humans part of the land and part of nature and and that spoke to you? Very, very deeply. On a really deep level, that spoke to me. I did a lot of research at Birmingham Central Library and found out about all these traditions, and, and the, the Padstow Obios was, was one of them. I thought, I, just, I absolutely have to go there. So I just went down by myself. I think I was 17, and I got a coach down, and I put myself into a and b And, um, yeah, that was it. And, and then you fell in love with it. That's absolutely right, yes. And and from that came your love of Cornwall, presumably. I mean, that's why you moved here. Yes, it? that's right. Yeah. It all, it all seemed to fit together. I feel very at peace, uncomfortable when I'm near water, particularly near the sea. And that helps me with my composition, too. And I'll tell you a bit more about that when we get down to Porth Town, because that's where I wrote Unknown African Boy. Yeah. Um, but if I'm ever needing inspiration or ideas to come, I've got to get out somewhere like this. So there's all this big sky, and it isn't always a beautiful blue like it is today. Um, it's often grey, but that doesn't matter to me. There's lots of sky that I can see, and you can hear the birds, and the hedgerows are absolutely abundant and bursting with life at the moment. And, yeah, it just... Some sort of magic happens, I'm not quite sure what it is that's going on but I instantly feel at peace and uh, there's a sort of a space inside me and ideas can come. I, I, I must yeah. say I, I empathise with that because you know it is obviously this podcast is all about walking and it's often about walking in rather beautiful places and in mm. nature and there is something calming and inspiring about connecting back with with nature when you've been in a big city or when you've been in a very hectic time there's something that uh, shifts your perspective. So I, I'm not long from London <laughs> here today, but my my mind has been opened and I feel my soul expanding as I come back to the countryside. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I, I think it is a, a thing that many many people can connect with. Now, Angelina, I wonder if you'd sing a song for us. I'd be happy to. Have you got one in mind? Uh, no, let's let's think. How about bushes and briars? Why have you chosen that one? Well, I wanted to sing something traditional to start with, and it was a bit literal, but we are surrounded by bushes and briars at the moment, are, aren't we? Yeah. So, uh, so that helped me. That's helped me to make the decision. But also, what I really particularly love about this song is the fact that it goes from those gorgeous descriptions of the natural world and of, of sort of what we imagine to be a rural life, um, and it goes straight from there to the interiority of the singer and we are connected with, with their emotional landscape and that feeling of, you know, when you're just crazed with, with love and desire for somebody and you don't know if they feel the same way about you you've got no way of possibly finding out and that sense of kind of instability that you feel at those sorts of moments it's it's horrible and, and, and this traditional song really goes to those deep emotional places and describes those feelings beautifully. Um, sometimes I am uneasy and troubled in my mind. So, yeah, it's there's so much that you can get from traditional song, isn't there? Through bushes and through briars I lately took my way all for to hear the small birds sing and the lambs to skip and play. I overheard my true love 
His voice it rang so clear. How long have I been waiting for the coming of my Sometimes I am uneasy and troubled in my mind. Sometimes I think I'll go to my love and tell to him my mind. But if I should go to my love, my love, he would say nay. If I show to him my boldness, he will never love me again. If I show to him my boldness, he will never love me bushes and through briars I lately took my way all for to hear the small birds a sing and the lambs to skip and to play that was gorgeous and it seems incredibly appropriate you know the lambs are probably skipping and playing somewhere near here aren't thank they thank you yes we'll see some probably <laughs> thank you for that so there you are in birmingham and you're getting interested in folk music i'm just interested in your in your family tell me was it a musical family did they introduce you to folk music um they didn't introduce me to folk music but lots and lots of music of all different genres and kinds was always being played so i come from a family of people who really love music so I'm very lucky I had like a really good sort of musical education so um, what sort of and my mum really loved uh, soul music for example and my my dad uh, really loved all kinds of Jamaican music so your mum was from Jamaica and your dad was from the Outer Hebrides I believe yes yeah that's right he went out to Jamaica um, to work and that's where he met my mum but so he'd never heard Jamaican music before and he was really moved by it he was really moved by the, the skian, the reggae, and, and all of the sounds that he heard out there, and all the Jamaican music that was influenced by American soul. Like it was completely new to him, so he really absorbed that and loved it. So lots of lots of listening to music, and lots and lots and lots of singing. So my family are all very enthusiastic singers. So for me, singing is, is as natural as breathing. And a lot of people like I, I, I run choirs and singing workshops a lot, and. I never allow people to say I can't sing, because lots of people say that, don't they? But lots of people ha are told that at an early age, when um, when they they could, but the confidence is taken from them, isn't it? That's right. It makes me. It upsets me so much. There are a, a huge amount of people who have been damaged by you know teachers or people saying, you know, oh, you can't sing. Just mouth the words at the back, or you know really unkind stuff and so my philosophy is that singing is your superpower and that's for everybody you don't have to perform the singing you don't have to be a sort of technically proficient but the actual act of singing of using the breath to make sound and make notes and make songs that's something that everybody can do and it's so good for the body and for the emotions and for the soul it uses the breath, it grounds you in the body. And um, I was reading Mariah Carey's autobiography. Oh, yeah. The meaning of Mariah Carey. I love her. She's, she's, she's wonderful. A true diva in the true sense of the word. Yes. Um, as in a singer of great distinction and a goddess. But Mariah says when she was little, she used to sing to herself. She had a very traumatic childhood. She would sing to herself under her breath and it calmed her down. And I used to do the same thing when I was little. I would just sing to myself under my breath and it would calm me down. And so I think, you know, as an adult doing some research about this, it seems that there's uh, 
you know, scientific research that backs this up, it actually singing does work with the breath and the parasympathetic nervous system and it calms the whole body and helps to reset you if you've been upset by something. It's a wonderful thing. And it was part of your life right from the start, presumably. Right from the start. Yeah, sorry, I've rambled on a no, bit. No, no, that's right. I was just the... explaining that my yeah. family were all... Every, everybody would sing just walking around doing stuff. Right. It was never a big deal. It was just something that happened very naturally. And, you know, friends would come to my house and say stuff like... There's four different people singing four different songs in four different rooms. I've never heard anything like this before. I'd be like, yeah, that's just normal for us. So for me to, to start going to folk clubs and everybody just bursts into song and finds their own harmonies, that just felt like home. It was lovely. I was. Um, what, do you, what happened? Where was the first folk club you went to? I can't even remember. Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> Were I you can't a teenager remember. when you went yeah, to a folk club? Yeah, I was club? a teenager and my dad, bless him, accompanied me. Right. Um, was he keen to hear folk music or did he just come to look after you? He, he just came to, to, as a sort of a, yeah, to take care of me really. But you felt instantly at home in the, in the club? Well, there's a very friendly vibe with most folk clubs, isn't there? And that's something that a lot of people find really welcoming about the world of folk and, and kind of the scene there's a friendliness there for me to go into any environment where people are just singing out like that is like bliss mm. and the person that that walks around the supermarket singing and genuinely not realizing what i'm doing and people come up to me and go oh someone's happy today <laughs> i'm like oh sorry <laughs> and were you writing songs as well in in your mind from an early age very much so yeah i i remember turning up to school age like five or whatever and being really surprised that other children didn't compose songs the way I was really shocked by that I thought everybody did it and also I was uh, my feelings were very hurt when I would sing something that I'd composed and nobody knew it <laughs> <laughs> well, you expected them to join in immediately I honestly was yeah <laughs> I thought by some kind of sympathetic magic everybody would know these songs I'd been writing at home but yeah, I was, uh, had a lot of learning to do. So you were exposed to all these different kinds of music, mm. and obviously you still listen to all different yeah, kinds of right, music. Yeah, I do. But what was it about folk music that particularly drew you? It's, it's difficult to pin it down to one thing. There are many things. So when I first heard traditional song, I later found out that it was Shirley Collins singing Our Captain Cried. So I, what I heard as a small child playing, coming out of the radio, was an unaccompanied female human voice of incredible purity and beauty. I'd never heard an unaccompanied voice like that. And I'd also never heard before that the kinds of cadences of melody, which characterise a lot of traditional songs, sort of melodies that are uncommon when you've been listening to a lot of pop music, they're kind of more hymnal in a way. And also archaic language and interesting pronunciation of words. It was all so exotic to me. And then that connection with something ancient that you can't define and you don't know so there's a mystery isn't there if a song is so old that nobody can remember who wrote it whether that's one person or many people then there's a there's a mystery there and I'm very attracted to anything mysterious that we can't necessarily pinpoint because I think it just allows your imagination free reign and that's really exciting for me um, and yeah it's it's for me it's it's that connection with with something ancient feels very meaningful. Now we've come down here to a rather beautiful stream. The blossom is out on the bush here and I wonder if this might be a spot for you to sing as a Cornish song. I'd be happy to, yeah. Um, I'm going to sing De Sulvitin, which in the Cornish language, Carnoic, means Sunday morning. It's a very beautiful song written by Richard Gandall, who writes some incredible folk songs in the Cornish language, really beautiful songs. And I heard this version by Brenda Wooten, who I'm sure you know of, a phenomenal, incredible Cornish folk singer, an amazing woman. She ran her own folk club, she was a ceramicist, and she was a real champion of the Cornish language, Cornish language songs and culture. And this song is very sweet and it's very beautiful, and it's about a moment it's about a moment in time where you wake up on a Sunday morning and everything's quiet and you're in bed with your beloved and your beloved is still asleep. And the whole three verses of the song are about just the incredible sweetness of this moment because you know it's fleeting. At some point they're going to wake up and that's, you know, that's a double-edged sword because when they wake up they can share the moment with you. But actually there's something really beautiful about the fact that they're in their own 
lovely dream world, having wonderful dreams, and, and that really stayed with me, the, the beauty of writing a song about a moment like that. And do you find the Cornish language easy or difficult? Well, you'll have to ask me in, a, ask me in about a year, because I'm, I'm, I'm at the very, very, very beginning stages at the moment. I find, it very, I find it a very beautiful language. It's difficult for me, because I'm completely new to it, but I think hopefully that will change when I have more time studying. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear you sing it now, alongside this lovely stream and with the blossom and the birds singing. <laughs> Desolved and he am gwelly, Golo de dunam nigiana. Whether there's a star in a tom ha close, rebore the new and Kelly's in him, he's a bell. some beautiful moments on this podcast and that was certainly up there with the best of them it was just absolutely gorgeous to hear you sing that song in the sunshine here by the stream thank you so much wow thank you no it's beautiful and, and i wonder if the language has any commonality with welsh because there's a sort of musicality about the, the language which feels as though it might be related in some way i believe it does i believe linguistic scholars say that there is a common some commonality with welsh yes and other celtic languages yeah so listen, shall we move on? Are we going to walk to the beach? Yes, we are. We're going to walk down to Portown Beach, which is where I wrote Unknown African Boy. So I wanted to take you there and show you the beach. It's, it's my favourite beach, actually. Let's I go. Let's go, yeah. We're actually going to ford the stream now, aren't we? We cannot avoid getting wet. No, exactly. Our feet are going to get a bit damp. There are some stones. We can avoid the mud, though. Should we go around the yeah, side? Yeah, let's go around the side thing? of this patch of mud. But the stream is remarkably clear and fast-flowing, isn't it, here? This is a beautiful stream. It's always clear. And sometimes, in summer, you can, like, move a big rock and place the rock in the middle and sit on it with your feet in the water. Oh, and yes. it's just, it's lovely, it's very meditative. I love to listen to the different sounds. There's like an orchestra of sound in this stream. And I love to just listen to it. And we just the... come a little bit further along it and it sounds different from the way it did back yeah. there about a hundred yards away, doesn't yeah. it? Because you can hear it going down a slight incline over to our left mm. there, over some rocks. So you can hear the water frothing here in a way that it wasn't doing when it was running just smoothly further upstream but I'm going to go first shall I get in there and go first yeah I'm going to go first and see some sort of stepping stones but maybe some splashing don't know how good they are yeah it's definitely just 
up to the top of my shoes. But fortunately, they're waterproof shoes. I'm just going to splash through. It's, it's, it's easier. I should put my wellies on now. Well <laughs> so I'd love to hear more about the Sorrow Songs project because that album has made such an impact and I'm, I'm just interested to know how it began, how, how it started in your mind. Yeah, well, I had the idea in quite nebulous forms and I say forms because there, there were many sort of forms that this idea took but it's been rolling around in my mind for some years and what I noticed was that there didn't seem to be any songs that I'd heard in the repertoire of traditional songs of Britain that seemed to represent or speak from any kind of experience of blackness. And I had always been taught, as many people are still taught to this day, that there quote-unquote weren't any black people in Britain until 1948 with Empire Windrush and you know this, this is a misconception. I believe this misconception because it's, you know, it's what we were taught in school. And then I gradually began to find out more and more about the UK's historic black presence. This is documented. There is evidence. The UK's historic black presence goes back at least 2,000 years. So... So to Roman times? Yes, yeah. at least, and that's just as far back as we have evidence for. So who knows about, you know, times before that. So this, this changed everything for me, and I, and I thought, well, what this actually means is that we belong here. Whatever some people might say, we actually do belong here. We have black ancestors that belong in these islands and that belong with this land and are deeply connected to this land. They will have had a song tradition and will have also sung the songs that were popular anyway in these islands. You know, everywhere people go in the world, they bring music, they exchange music, they compose music, they create songs. It's a, a thing that's common, I think, to all humans. That's what we're song-making creatures, aren't we, as humans? So did you so, set out on a journey to try to find the black songs? Well, I did. I found um, there are lots of songs where black characters are mentioned, quite a lot of songs, and I think this, this in itself points to awareness of black people and also to historic black presence but the problem with with the majority of those songs that I found is that the black people were represented in ways that I certainly wouldn't want to sing and also it seemed clear that the songs were not written from the perspective of the black people they were written about black people and at the time of George Floyd's murder in 2020 this was really the catalyst because I reread The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois and chapter 14 is called Of the Sorrow Songs and he uses the term the sorrow songs to refer to the body of black folk song that the enslaved Africans in America and their descendants have. So this body of song is really important. It's really important for identity. It's really important for a sense of self and a sense of group belonging, a sense of history. And, and, and also these songs are important in terms of being able to give voice to incredible experiences of the most horrific brutality and suffering that are really hard to put into words. You can communicate things in song form that, that I think are really hard to to say in, in, in language, spoken or written. There's an emotional element to song that makes it, I think, easier to express those things. So, so I was thinking, this made me think, well, we have this historic black presence in Britain, where's the body of folk song? That's what we don't have. And people in general have, have, a, have a sense of awareness of black folk music as something American, but not as something British. Isn't that and, interesting? And do you think that the songs were here but were just not recorded, that the people recording were coming from a different perspective, from the white perspective, and therefore they ignored the songs that were being sung by black British people. Yeah, I, th I think there's, there's absolutely no way that there were never any songs sung by black British people. There's no way that that could have, could have been possible. Mm. Um, I think that if the historic black Britons have been rendered out of official history, then it makes sense that also their songs would have been rendered out of official song history. So you set about remedying this in a way, and, and, and I think you researched stories of black Britons 
in order to tell them in, in folk song. So mm. where did you find the stories? That's a very, very interesting question because the thing about research, as I was saying earlier, is when you find out a little bit about something, then all of a sudden all of these other doors and windows open up and more information comes to you from a variety of sources. So we were in the lockdown when I began research on this and a lot of libraries and archives put their materials online, so that was a real gift to me. And there were lots of helpful people as well. Once people found out I was researching this, I would tweet about it or put stuff on the socials, and people would contact me with information. A lot of historians who are, are just interested in black history, they're not necessarily professional historians or, or writers or, or lecturers or anything, but they've got a lot of information and they wanted to share, so I got a lot of stuff that way. Um, it's very interesting, a, a huge variety, a huge and very exciting variety of, of sources. And can you give me some examples of the kind of stories that you... You uncovered. I know we're going to hear a couple of them in song in a moment, but yeah. some of the others that, that came to you. Well, there were so many, and the thing that really amazed me at the start of my research was that I felt quite overwhelmed. I thought there is so very much black history in these islands. I'm not going to get enough time to read it all because I, st I started off thinking, uh, you know, uh, am I going to find enough material for stories? And very quickly realised that I would be overwhelmed. There are stories of enslaved people who, who ran away and were recaptured, stories of enslaved people who ran away successfully. There are hue and cries. You know what the hue and cry is? Mm -hmm. I, I used to think that hue and cry meant like hullabaloo or something, making a massive noise, but actually hue and cry is the term given to an advert taken out in the press where you describe your escaped slave and offer a reward for their return. That's a hue and cry. So right, that was an I interesting thing that. that I found out as well, yeah. So So yeah. all sorts of details and stories and experiences were coming to you. Yeah. How did you manage to distill all that information into the songs? A very good question <laughs> and a very difficult one to answer because there were so very many stories and these are all real people and I wanted to honour them. I wanted to honour all of these black ancestors. And not all of them made it to the album. For example, there was um, a story of a black girl in a green dress who was enslaved and escaped in Scotland. And that detail of the green dress really stayed with me and I wanted to write something about her and her green dress. Didn't quite write it in time. And also, um, Billy Waters, there was a, a recent Guardian article about Billy Waters. In the 1820s, he was a very famous busker in London. He was a celebrity, pretty much. African-American originally, he was enslaved in America, ran away to fight for the British, lost a leg on board ship and was a very famous sight in London because he had a wooden prosthetic leg which he used as part of his dance routine, like he'd sort of pirouette and spin on it and he also had an amazing hat that he handmade in the shape of a ship in full sail. Wow. Yes, yeah, absolutely incredible and he was a singer and a fiddle player and busking at the time was considered a form of begging and was against the law. So he was, every time he performed, he risked being arrested. He was very devoted to his wife and family, but extremely poor. And he and his family entered, entered a workhouse and died 10 days later. So I think they were probably just very browbeaten by poverty, very malnourished, but he was, a black celebrity on the streets of London in the 1820s. Mm -hmm. And the song that I started for him just wasn't ready in time. So there are many that didn't make it. How did I choose the stories? Really, it was the ones that struck me emotionally and that I felt I would be able to sing and play and convey with some kind of emotional truth. Where I felt like as a, as a storyteller, I could I could connect with the subject matter and with the people that I was singing about. So that that's what really helped me make the decision. And there were different ways that I felt I could connect with the different people, but that that sense of connection was really the thing that helped me to choose. It sounds to me like there might need to be another album. <laughs> You're not the first person to suggest that. Maybe. <laughs> well, if there's all this material that was too late or didn't quite make it and you've got all these stories that might become songs, then maybe the process needs to continue. Well, maybe it does. You never know. <laughs> Shall we walk round this puddle? Here we are at Port Town Beach and there 
Certainly some white-capped waves. It's beautiful, there? isn't it? Watch your feet. It's very rocky on this bit. Yeah, it's we're going over the pebbles. Waves. Look at the colour of that water. It's a real sort of aquamarine today. It's gorgeous, and there's a little breeze blowing, but the sun is out. And I'm, I'm guessing these flags are here to tell us not to go swimming. So I wasn't thinking of it, were you? <laughs> well, you know, I, I have been swimming on much colder days than this. <laughs> Do you swim in the sea often? Yeah, I really, I really love swimming in the sea. It's. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things I do for my well-being. Yeah. And I just love, I, I feel like I disappear when I go to swim in the sea. And I mean that in a positive way. I mean, I feel like, I feel like I'm just effortlessly part of nature when I'm in the water. Whatever troubles you had when you, before you got into the sea, it washes them away when you come out. That's not to say they don't come back later on. But, <laughs> but from, for a time, it feels like the sea just cleanses you of all the worries that you had before you went in. I'm, I'm just drawn to go right down to the edge of the water. Yeah, I don't know it. why, but I think we should go and dip our toes in the in the water. It's such a glorious colour, isn't it? Deep green out, out there and then blue coming in and the white intersected by the white of those waves, breakers. And there's a cliff on either end of the beach, so we're, we're sort of in an inlet, aren't we, between the two cliffs. And there's some surfers. Of course, this is Cornwall. <laughs> they came out just for you. Now, I've got in my hand an auto harm, which belongs to you, it's not mine. Yeah, um, I'll be wanting that back. Uh, and and I, I assume you brought it because this is a place that inspired you to write a song, is that right? Yes, I actually did compose the song here. I came here because I really, I really just needed the, I needed the space and the light and the sky and the water to help clear my mind. But it wasn't the place as such that inspired the song. It was one of the stories that I found when I was researching for the Sorrow Songs that actually inspired the song. Unknown African boy, brackets, died 1830. And that's important because this happened in 1830 off St. Martin's, Isles of Scilly, which was one of the routes that a lot of ships used in the transatlantic slave trade. On this particular occasion, the captain of the ship was really exhausted, made a misjudgment, and the ship was wrecked. And newspapers of the time in 1830 reported all of the things that had been washed up onto the shore as a result of this wreck. And it was really interesting because they were all very luxurious, expensive things. So there were seven boxes, I think, of gold dust. There were boxes of silver dollars. There was ivory, you know, elephant tusks, and the body of an unknown African boy, estimated age around eight. And that, it just broke my heart. When I got to that detail, it absolutely broke my heart. So it's not known whether he also was destined to be sold somewhere, or whether he had already been bought and sold and was enslaved to or serving the captain or, or, or the crew on board ship or somebody on board ship. But the fact that he was listed as a possession yeah. alongside those other expensive possessions is the most chilling thought, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this story just... When you're researching something like this, you, as you can imagine, your emotions take a very, very serious battering all the time. That like, Some of the things that you read about are... You know, you, you have to take time out because they affect you so profoundly and make you so desperate about the state of the world. And then also you think to yourself, well, I didn't actually have to go through this. You know, I, I'm upset by this, but actually real people experienced this and went through it. I've got the option to close this book and walk away if I want to. They didn't have that option. So very, very emotionally grueling, really draining but this story I really couldn't get this story out of my mind and I wanted to honour that little boy and also all of the children and babies and toddlers and teenagers who were separated from their parents who were abducted and trafficked into slavery I wanted to honour them so this song is like a lullaby for all of those trafficked and enslaved children and it's also intended as a hug for all those bereft mothers the song starts and ends I, I was I, I didn't know how to 
I didn't know how I was going to story this into song form because it just affected me so much. And that's why I came to this beach because I, I knew that eventually I would find a way in and that the sea would help me. And I walked up and down this beach for what seemed like most of a day. I don't know how long it was. It probably wasn't that long really, but it seemed like it. And I, first of all, I got the idea that I wanted to write the song from the perspective of his mother. Because the idea of a universal human experience, that's quite, you know, some people agree with that as an idea, some people disagree with it. But I think everyone can relate to loss, especially if it's loss of someone who's really precious to you where you have no control over that loss. That person was taken from you. I think that's something that everyone can relate to on some level. So that was the first way in that I got. Okay, this is a mother's lament, a grieving mother's lament. And on the recording, when Eliza Carthy comes in and she produced the album and did a, a beautiful job, she wrote all the string arrangements. And when her voice comes in, she, she she's representing the, the collective grief of all the bereft others in that village when they realise, they begin to realise what's happened and that there's a reason why they can't find their children either. And the next thing that came to me on the beach was, was the opening line, oh my brown arms they are sad and empty. So the song begins and ends with the mother's arms. First of all it's the human mother who has been robbed of her son in the most brutal of ways and then at the end of the song, the little boy is buried in the earth and the earth is his mother and she holds him safe in her soft brown arms. So I wanted those arms at the beginning and end of the song to be like a hug for the listener because it's, you know, it's hard to listen to this kind of story. So I wanted to, to give some sort of a... So it was meant to be like a mother's hug. Would you sing it for us? Of course, yes. Perhaps we need to find somewhere a bit less windy for that. Yes, let's do that, yeah. <laughs> Stars and the wind. 
and the sea My spirit will rise into earth and water. To mother's love, he might then know. Do leave, my dear babe, wherever you be. The sea be your bed and the waves be your pillow. May the sun in the sky keep you from overhead. The earth is your mother now, dear baby. So we're at Wendron Church now, and the church is on one side of the road, and then there's a graveyard on the other side of the road. And we're going to go into the graveyard now, aren't we, Angelina? That's right, yeah. So why have you brought us here, Angeline? Well, this is um, this is Wendron Cemetery, and soon we will come to quite an extraordinary grave because it contains a master and slave buried together. So a Cornish miner named Thomas Johns, who died in 1861, he was buried here first, he went to Brazil to start a new life, to try his luck over there. And whilst he was there, he purchased a seven-year-old enslaved boy who was originally from Mozambique. And that boy was Evaristo Muchavela. From what little we know of the story, and there are few details, it seems that Thomas Johns was actually quite a kind master to Evaristo Muchavela. It seems that he he treated him pretty well. I mean, the fact that he owned him is is one thing. But they lived together in Brazil until Evaristo was a young man and Thomas was an older man and Thomas became ill and he wanted to go back home to Cornwall because he knew he was dying and he wanted to die at home. So the story goes that he gave Evaristo a choice and he said you can either stay on in Brazil on your own and I'll give you your freedom or you can come back to Cornwall with me and you'll be my serving man because by this point it was no longer legal to own an enslaved person on uh, British soil. So Evaristo chose to stay with his master who was soon to become his former master and they're buried together here. And what's also very interesting is that before he died, Thomas Johns made sure that Evaristo had somewhere to stay and could retrain as a cabinet maker. And he worked on Four Street, which is the main street in Redruth. He worked for a cabinet maker called William Wales. So I'm in the process of trying to find out which building it was. I haven't managed to find that yet. 
but yeah, in the in the 1860s in Radruth, on Radruth High Street, there was a black guy working as a cabinet maker. That's an amazing revelation, isn't it, when you think of the fact that people say, oh, there were no black people in this country until after <laughs> 1948. Exactly that, and, that, and I, I do always say that when I'm, when I'm telling the story. I say, so, so the next time anybody tries to tell you that there weren't any black people around before 1948. Let's look at the grave here, because it has the details of their their lives. It's, uh, Thomas Johns is at the top there, and Evaristo is below. It says, born in Mozambique, South Africa, died at Redruth in 1868. Evaristo was quite young when he died. Yes, um, he died at age 38 and Thomas Johns was age 61. But then you do have to remember that when Thomas Johns purchased Evaristo, he was a seven-year-old boy. So there was a big age difference between them. These gravestones are often a record of, of history, aren't they? And that's mm. just a fascinating history. And it's a fascinating thing that they are buried in the same grave. Do you think that's a surprising thing? Well, it feels surprising to us nowadays, doesn't it? Maybe it was not so surprising back then, but it feels as though it feels as though they should have had a real bond. To be buried in the same grave, you would expect that they would have had a real bond. Both men are not recorded to have had any significant partnerships or children, so maybe they became like family to one another. Nobody knows. And when you heard that story, were you immediately seized with the idea, oh, this must become a song? Yes, I think something in me knew that this was definitely going to become a song, but what really made me decide that it had to be a song is when I came here and read that inscription, Here lie the master and the slave, side by side within one grave. Distinction is lost and caste is o'er, the slave is now a slave no more. And I thought, that's that. I need to sing that. Would you sing the song for us here by the grave? I'd be happy to. Here lie the master and the slave Side by side within one grave Distinction is lost and caste is o'er The slave is slave no more Slave no more Slave no slave is now a slave no more. Stolen was I from Mozambique, a lad so small I scarce could speak. Chained in the hold, so sick and weak, my spirit it did kill. Such sights did I see, no tongue can tell. A child engulfed by the fires of hell. And since I survived, they thought it well to sell me in Brazil. Slave no Slave no more The slave is now a slave no more Fresh from my torment on the sea A Cornish miner purchased me he fed and clothed me speedily, he treated me right well. Oh, hard did I toil for many a year, but my kind master I did not fear. A kinship and loyalty sincere, within my breast did dwell. Slave no more, slave no more, the slave is now a slave no more. 
both strangers on this foreign shore with tribulation great in store alas it was not long before my master's health did fail twas then the choice he gave to me stay as serving man or leave and be free i chose the first and so did we for cornwall soon set sail slave no slave is now a slave no more in wendron town in cornwall fair we came to live i served him there i nursed him with a brother's care with love did him surround his death came soon but even then he left me means to work again we're buried now to equal men together in the ground slave no more slave no more the slave is now a slave no extraordinary to hear that sung near the grave where those two men are, are buried. I wonder what the reaction has been when you've taken these songs on the road and, and played them to audiences because it, it must be sometimes quite a challenging evening for audiences to, to hear these stories. Yes, I think that's true. It's The stories are all very hard to hear in different ways and also there are little moments of sunshine in them I wanted to end the album with this one because of the message that, that the slave is now a slave no more and that the two men, in death, they are equal. They are absolutely equal men. But yes, audience reactions... I've been really overwhelmed, actually. Audiences have been very receptive. Lots of people have wanted to come and talk to me afterwards, maybe find out a bit more. People have wanted to know about the research process and you know maybe where they can find out more about the hidden black history in Britain so it's been yeah it's been really really wonderful to play these songs live to people and also to chat to them afterwards about it and do you think the songs might or do you hope the songs might take on a life of their own and that, that they might go out into the world and, and and be sung by other people in the in the way that traditional songs are I really hope so that would be amazing I would absolutely love that that's probably my biggest my biggest dream for this album is that the songs will become part of a living singing tradition and that there will be there will finally be representation of Britain's hidden historic black populations in the folk songs. Angeline, it's been absolutely amazing to walk with you, to hear these stories and to above all hear you sing in these extraordinary places. Thank you so much for joining us on Folk on Foot. Thank you so much for having me, it's been wonderful. you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it and if you'd like us to go on making more of these podcasts please support us by making a contribution through patreon or by buying us a coffee you can do both things at folkonfoot.com support us 
and we really appreciate any donation, no matter how small. We love making Folk on Foot, and with your help, we'd like to go on making it forever. Thank you.